I spent this past week doing something that I love. I absolutely love it. Once a year, I get to head up to Roanoke Christian Camp in, in Washington, North Carolina, and I get to be a part of a week of summer camp. Uh, I was up there this week, like Carly just said, with about, I don't know, 11 or 12 of our venture people, uh, some of them staff, some of them students, and we were serving uh, Roanoke Christian Camp for their high school week. We had about 80 high school students, so if your idea of a good time is to hang out with 80 high school students, we were living in paradise for you. If that's not for you, it's probably good that you stayed home. It was a, it was a lot of fun. We had a blast. Uh, our camp was built in the 1950s, I think. The majority of the buildings that are there uh, were the ones that were built originally or shortly thereafter. Some more were built in the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, but needless to say, the facilities are... Uh, they're old, and uh, so you guys who were at our men's retreat back in the spring, that's the same place we had our men's retreat, and you go there, it's like, it's like camp, you know what I'm saying? Like it's old school, and the buildings are old, and the facilities are old, the atmosphere is old school, and we love to complain about it. No, we, we love to complain about it. everything's broken, but you know what we also love? We love it just the way it is. It wouldn't change a thing, and it's great, and it's that conflict that we wrestle with every summer. Well, this summer... The camp manager was walking around with these big printed papers and he was showing everybody and he was excited and he was showing us these new architectural drawings of like brand new camp. Like bring a bulldozer in, take the old stuff out, build some new stuff. And we were like, whoa, we were like, ooh. Ah, and he was showing us these state-of-the-art dorms and cabins and this huge cafeteria that's gonna have like a wraparound porch at the river and beautiful. And we were just blown away, but just a couple hours later, I was walking through one of the fields with my brother, Jason, who was on staff last week too, and I was like, man, I, I don't know how I feel about these new plans. I mean, because this is camp. Like, we've been doing camp here for a long time. I've been going to that camp since the mid-80s at first as a student, then as a junior counselor, and then as a staff member counselor, then as like, I've been like a dean of a week of camp for about the last 15 years. I don't know. Like, it's hard for me to imagine a new camp. Like, could we even do camp there? And what I said to my brother was, it would be like going to a, somebody else's camp. <laughs> Here's the thing. I think that there are things in our life that we just cannot imagine being any different. We can't imagine them changing, especially the things that seem like concrete pillars in our life. I'm reading a book right now. Uh, it's basically like this science fiction, uh, a post-apocalyptic, elliptic, uh, you know, dysphorian future craziness kind of book and and, and one, one of the uh, one of the premises of the book was the main premise of the book was there's this this pandemic flu that killed like 99.9 percent of the population of the world so everything that we know has shut down and so the book large part of the book is it's a crazy part it's like where the the adults in the book are trying to explain to the kids way in the future like what the internet was and it was like this thing, and it was like connected us. There was these boxes we had, and these little things we kept in our pockets. And like, it didn't make any sense trying to explain airplanes, and they would show them airplanes on the ground and be like, these things used to fly like birds. And the kids were like, I, I don't know why you would wanna live in that world. That's why the kids thought, but for us, no internet? I mean, in the grand scheme of world history, the internet hasn't been around that long, but most of us can't go very long without it. We need it to do our work. We need it to do our play. We need it to just feel confident. Uh, I heard this thing one time. There was a time when Facebook shut down and uh, in larger cities, I think it was, it was like in New York or Chicago, a larger city, and people were calling 911 because like literally they were calling 911 because Facebook was down and they, were, they couldn't take it. It wasn't because they were like, they thought the paramedics would fix the internet, but it was just like they were having straight up anxiety attacks because they just didn't know what to do with themselves. Now, can you imagine though, 
the world as we know it changing. There are things in this world we can't imagine changing. But what if there were some things that if they did change, it would be so much better? The life as we know it would be so much more worth living. Last week, we dove into a new teaching series to the book of Romans. Uh, we're calling it the Gears of the Gospel because when you open up the book of Romans in the New Testament, it's one of the larger letters written to the churches and uh, it, it reads a little bit like an instruction manual for how Christianity works. I mean, there's a lot of details about how the gears of our faith kind of work and uh, so that's why we got these gears and that's why we got the whole gears thing going on because it's the gears of the gospel and each week our goal is to kind of dig into, pop open the hood of what the Christian faith is and say, what does it mean to us and how does does it function? And so last week, we looked at chapters one and two, and there was this universal problem in the world that we understood. The fact was that mankind is apt to ignore God, and that we tend to worship created things rather than the creator, or that we just worship ourselves rather than the creator, which by the way, we are also created things. And we honor ourselves more than we honor God. And there's this big problem. We call that question zero. Question zero is asking the question, why? Why do we do something? Why do we need something? Why do we need the gospel? And we found out last week that though there are a lot of things that may separate us and make us feel different and, and divide us, the one thing that unifies us is our common need for salvation from our sins and reconnection with God. And so that's what the gospel offers. That was last week in question zero. But God instituted a plan to deal with that problem. And today, as we're going to uh, jump into the Bible, we're going to start in Romans chapter 3. And if you've got a uh, Bible, go ahead and flip over there. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 3, 4, and 5 today. We're going to get through a big chunks of all three of those chapters. If you don't have a Bible, we've got free ones we give away on this shelf right over there by the door. Uh, but the scripture is also going to be in the screens beside me. Because uh, the, as we looked at these chapters, you, you look at the, the world as it is, and we see the brokenness and the pain and the shame and, and, and the mess that's out there. And let's be honest, it's hard to imagine that the world could be any different. Just watch the news and talk about the state of things like economics or education or all of the other major pillars of our society. And you're like, the system's broken. I don't think you can fix it. I, and in our minds, it's kind of like summer camp or the internet. It's like, it could never be different. But here's the thing. God assures us and promises us that it can be different. And the gospel is the answer to the question, how? So we're gonna be jumping in the book. Before we get into our, our text today, we're gonna be in Romans chapter three, starting at verse 21, if you wanna put your finger there on your phone or in your Bible, but Romans three twenty-one. But to get into our text, we gotta get some context. And so just as a reminder, what Paul was doing, the apostle Paul writes this letter to the church of, of Christians in the city of Rome, and there was a major division. And this division is kind of the catalyst for this book. And the division was basically between two sects of the church. The first sect was uh, the Jewish sect. And so these people who had been Jewish in their faith before they discovered Jesus. And so they have the whole heritage and the history of the Jewish faith. And then uh, they discover Jesus and they begin to live for him and they're Christians. That's one half of the church. And then the other half of the church at Rome were the people who were not Jewish before their faith. And so either they, maybe they were part of some pagan religion or maybe they didn't believe in a God of some kind or maybe they just weren't practicing any faith. But these are people who didn't come with a Jewish heritage. And so they take Jesus at face value and they move forward with him. And the big argument between these two factions was that especially the Jews were saying, listen, in addition to the Jewish law that we believe, you, you have to have Jesus. And let me say that backwards. In addition to Jesus, you have to follow 
the Jewish law, and this meant Jewish dietary kosher law. It meant uh, circumcision. It meant the Jewish festivals and calendar. It meant all these things that the Gentile crowd, when we hear Gentile, just think someone who didn't have a Jewish heritage, they say, I, I don't want to I don't want to do that. I don't feel like I need that. I don't feel like it's part of what Paul is teaching and the other apostles are teaching. And so Paul's about to make it very clear in these three chapters that the law was never intended to be the end all for our relationship with God. The law was a guide. The law was a template. The law was something that could show us to God, but it never actually effectively did what Jesus can do. So let's just jump in. We're in Romans chapter three, verse 21. Paul starts like this. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Paul literally wants to reach across the aisle and say, listen, this Christianity thing is for all of us, and it is apart from the law. Not in addition to the law, but completely separate unto itself from the law. So let me get a little grammar nerdy on you real quick. I love, I love grammar, and um, I wonder if any of you have a favorite part of speech. Does anybody, that's pretty nerdy, right? If you know what a part of speech is? That's like nouns and verbs and adjectives. And so now, you might just now be learning that that's what a part of speech is. Part of speech is that thing that your teacher was like, draw lines between the different parts or whatever. Okay, I have a favorite part of speech. Uh, it actually comes from Bible study because through Bible study, I've learned to love this part of speech. It's called the preposition. And I've taught this before, but if you forgot it or you never heard it before, I want you to think about this. The, the preposition is a powerful part of speech. A preposition is the part of speech that shows us uh, how a noun relates with other parts of the sentence. So the airplane goes over the cloud, the, the frog goes under the fence, over, under, to, from, by, for. These are prepositions. And I also have a favorite preposition that makes me like top shelf nerdy. Okay, my favorite preposition is through, through. Through is a doorway word, okay? So you go through the kitchen to get to the master bedroom. It's a doorway, it's a passageway. It shows you the instruction from how to get it from point A to point B. And we learned something awesome here about the word faith. And so put that scripture back on the screen, the one we just read. Faith is a doorway to righteousness. Last week what we learned was that like, there's a big problem. What causes the problem? Well, when there's evil in the world, particularly in our lives, that evil provokes God's wrath, okay? So evil provokes God's wrath. But righteousness which is the opposite of evil, brings God joy. Evil provokes wrath, righteousness brings joy. The problem is we're short on righteousness because we've sinned and we've turned our back on God or maybe we've just not been looking for God at all in the first place or maybe we were not taught about God. That was all last week's stuff. And Paul says, listen, there's a salvation. There's a righteousness that comes apart from the law. And this is, this is the doorway into that righteousness. Righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now, what is this doorway? The doorway is faith in Jesus. And if we can walk through that doorway of faith in Jesus, on the other side is righteousness, and when righteousness is in our lives, God has joy. And so Paul wants to tell this Jewish faction of the church and also ourselves, he says, listen, when it comes to being made right with God, there is something more effective than following just religious code. Paul himself was a Jew. 
He actually loved the law. He loved the word of God, the Old Testament. He's not being disrespectful. He's not trying to shame these people. He's just letting them know there's something far more effective than just the law itself. And that thing is faith in Jesus. Here's just a sentence. You can jot it down or remember it. Faith in Jesus is the doorway to bringing God joy. Faith in Jesus is the doorway to bringing God joy. Paul keeps explaining. In verse 23, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus. Remember back in chapter one, we learned that God's wrath is stirred up by our sin. And there's nothing that we can do to fix God's wrath on our own. We don't have that power. We don't have that ability. But someone else did have the power and did do the work. And that was Jesus. And you know what Jesus' death on the cross did? It satisfied God's wrath. It would fix the problem. Verse 25 is a big old chunk of meat for us to chew on today. If you've got a paper Bible or a Bible you can highlight with on your finger, on your phone, you need to underline this verse. Verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Now we're going to leave this passage up on the screen here for a minute and and just talk about something for a minute. Um, in this study, we're comparing Romans to a manual, an instruction manual for Christianity, right? And we're going to pop the hood, and we're going to look at the gears on the inside. And I don't know if you've ever read many instruction manuals, but they're not exactly like leisure reading. You're not like, ooh, oh, the new refrigerator. Can I see that instruction manual? Oh, great. It's in Chinese and French. Awesome. Russian. Ooh, I think it's upside down. Like, you know, like, but when we see instruction manuals, we don't think like, ooh, easy reading. Unfortunately, that is how a lot of people explain Jesus to people. Too many words, too many big over their head concepts, and like we overcomplicate the gospel. Now, here's the reality. The truth is there are a handful of words and concepts in the Bible that are difficult to understand and that we don't readily understand because we don't use those words all the time. Um, but the concept is basically simple. And this verse that we were just now looking at is foundational to what knowing Jesus is all about. So what I wanna do is I wanna break down this one sentence. There are maybe a couple of words uh, like atonement that you don't use all the time, but you're smart, you can follow this. And we're gonna break it down just one little phrase at a time and just see what the gospel is. Pop the hood, look at the gears. Verse 25, God presented Christ. That's the first little phrase. God presented Christ. What does that mean? Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. And so somehow through his magnificent power, God made it possible for a version of himself to inhabit human flesh. And he came as a baby. We celebrate that as Christmas. at Christmas. He grew up. And when he was in his early 30s, he began a public ministry. And in doing so, he began to proclaim a new kingdom and, and all these stuff. We talk about this all the time, but that's God presented Christ. Now, now the word Christ is a word that maybe uh, you don't think about often, we think of it maybe a little bit like it's Jesus' last name. Jesus Christ, that's his last name. And you'll have when he, if he had kids, they'd be, their last name would be Christ and it would be passed on. Christ is not a last name, it's a, it's a title. And let me just kind of take it to a different language for you because we all know what Christ means, but we don't realize it necessarily. Christ is a translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, 
Messiahs are what we're more familiar with. LeBron James was the Messiah for the Cleveland Cavaliers. He went in and saved their butts and brought them a championship. Like that's, that's what a Messiah does. A Messiah is a chosen one, an anointed special person who comes in and changes everything and saves everything. That's a Messiah, but in God language, it's this savior who is gonna come and, and make things right between God and mankind. So God presented Christ. Let's keep going. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Now remember, Jesus, or Paul here is talking to a group of Jews who are very fixated on their law and a major portion of their law involved this uh, animal blood sacrifice. The Jewish law showed that the only way to forgive your sins was through blood sacrifice. And so the priests would offer up these sacrifice of lambs and bulls and goats and doves and different things. And it was understood that these sacrifices had to be done every year at least. The implication and the thing that the Jews understood was that the blood was insufficient to really cover their sins. They actually called it rolling back their sins. So once a year, they would roll them back again, and they would roll them back again. It was a faith thing. It was a, it was a, it was a thing saying, God, I trust you, and I'm just going to do this thing to show you that I'm still on board with you. The book of Hebrews kind of goes further to teach us about the insufficiency of blood sacrifice. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, it says this. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are to come, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifice repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? That's a good point. Like if it, if it was permanent, then you wouldn't have to keep offering sacrifices, but they had to do it year after year. For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin. It is impossible for the blood of bull and goats to take away sins. So back to our verse. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. Atonement is a word that just means payment. And Christ's blood finally makes the full payment for sin. For anyone who has faith in it. In the past, our faith would have been in the animal sacrifice, the ritual sacrifice. That's where the faith was placed. But Paul says the doorway into righteousness now is faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus offered his own blood as an atoning sacrifice. And because he was human, and because he lived a perfect life, and because he was God in the flesh, and because he rose from the dead after dying, the blood would stick, it would count. And it would wipe away our sins for the rest of our life once we put faith in him. And catch this. This is great. Little math here, okay. Who is it that owes the debt to God? Who is it? Us. Mankind. Humans. Me. I'll be me. I owe a debt to God. Fill in the blank with your name. You owe a debt to God. And to whom is the payment due? It's due to God. But according to this verse, who makes that payment in full? Jesus, or God in the flesh. God goes to bat for us and pays our tab off in full to himself, zero net gain. (laughs) And and I was blown away, and I was trying to think uh, of a word for that. And uh, I tried to think bargain. It was a bargain. It's a great bargain. It was a deal, BOGO. Like, I don't know. It was like a huge thing. And the only word that would work, and I think it's 
fitting that the Bible uses it. The only word that works for that is grace. To get a gift that you can't pay for, a pardon that you can't afford, and to get it for free. Grace. And so when you strip back the message of Jesus and you look at this verse, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by what? Faith. Faith is the doorway to righteousness and faith in Jesus specifically. That was chapter three. We move along to chapter four, and when you get into chapter four, Paul's just going to use this kind of extended um, explanation of what he's already talking about. He's going to use the person named Abraham. Now, about five or six weeks ago, when we were doing our Let's Open the Bible series, we talked about Abraham, and we talked about who he was. Essentially, Abraham was the very first person that God decided to speak to about his plan to redeem the world. And so he goes to Abraham, and he tells Abraham something pretty crazy. He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless the whole world through you but I need to see if you trust me. I need you to pack up all the things you own and I need you to go to the place that I will show you. Now, if, if it was my family vacation, I imagine that family meeting where I'm like, hey, we're packing up and we're going somewhere and my family's gonna go, where are we going? And Abraham has to go to the place that God will show us. Okay, so this God that you've been hearing, he hasn't told you where to go yet? No. So how do we know which way to go? I, I don't know. We're just going to pack up today, and then tomorrow we're going to, I guess we'll start walking that way. Can you imagine that? And the level of faith that it must have taken. And so Abraham becomes, throughout history, the godfather of faith. I mean, he followed, their, the God, he followed God before there was written scripture. He followed God before there was evidence based in someone else's life to look at and say, okay, it worked for him and it worked for me. He, he was like the total first hipster God. Like he was following God before it was cool. Like this is, this is Abraham. He's like, I'm just gonna do this. And what he did is called faith. And as a result, Abraham becomes the father of the nation of Israel, which becomes the Jewish people, which are the people that Paul's writing to saying, listen, I'm on your team. I know your people. And I want you to know that it's not that we're just going off script here. This is still part of God's great big plan. It actually begins with Abraham, but check it out. It wasn't actually the law that made Abraham so great either. If you want everyone to follow the law like you, you know what made Abraham great? You know what made him righteous before God? Paul tells us in Romans 4 verse 3. He says, what does scripture say? I love that he asks a group of Jews that. They're trying to throw scripture at everyone else. And he says, listen, what does scripture say? that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Later, he's gonna also use the word faith in addition to belief and saying that his faith is what was credited to him as righteousness. And verse 13 clarifies it even for, further if you skip on ahead. So it wasn't through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes through faith. We talk a lot about faith here. Faith is foundational. It is foundational to everything we do. Without faith, what we're doing is just social club. It's just hangout. It's just, you know, using a basketball gym for public speaking opportunities. Like, that's, that's all it is. Without faith, we're not the church. Faith is, uh, is how a person bridges the gap between what they know and what they don't know. And I've given this definition, I don't know, a couple dozen times, and I wanna make sure you understand this. Like, there are things that we know and there are things that we don't know. For example, 
I have no idea how the GPS on my phone works. I have no idea. I could tell you something to make you think I kind of understand. Like there's satellites and the software and algorithms and there's maps involved and smart people and millions of dollars and Google got in there somehow. But like if that all fell apart and tomorrow we woke up and there was no GPS on our phones and you came to me you're like, Chris, fix it, make a new one. I'd be like, I don't know where to start. Mine's broken. Um, and so I, I, I don't know how GPS works, but here's what I do know. That if you invited me to come to lunch with you after church today and you told me about a restaurant that I've never been to and I didn't know where it was, you know what I would do? Punch it in on my phone, hit go, follow the blue line. That's what I would do. And I would get there. You know why? Because I've done that before and it works. And every now and then, you know, it'll make, give you a wrong turn, wrong turn or make, you know, but for the most part it works. I know that it works. I know that it will get me there. I don't know how it works. And the thing that bridges that gap, we call faith. Now, that's just faith in, in a thing. I mean, you have faith in the bricks in your car. You have faith in a lot of things. Um, but faith in God is taking things to another level. And it's saying, and it's the same exact thing, but it's saying, I believe that God is who he says he is. And that he will do what he says he's going to do. And I'm going to take action because of it. I'm going to begin to take steps based on what I believe. I don't understand everything there is to know about God. We spend so much of our Christian journey, and maybe you're in a place right now where you wouldn't identify yourself as a Christian, and that's fine. I'm glad you're here. This is a place for you. We, we, love, we love hanging out with friends from all over the city with different backgrounds. And so it might just be for you. You're just like, I don't even know what to believe in. I don't have faith in anything. But here's the thing. We all have faith in something. We believe in something. God says, believe in me. And then he gives us thousands of years of track record, starting with people like Abraham and moving up forward to people that we know and love today. That's faith. God wants you to know that he has a solution for the brokenness in the world. And he's got a plan for your life and he's got a purpose for your existence. He says, look at the lives of the other people who have come before you. Abraham, the millions of other people who have put faith in me, observe that I have not let them down. And punch it in and hit go and follow me to the place that I'll show you. That's faith. Back to our text. We're still in chapter four. In Romans chapter four, starting in verse 16, Paul continues. He says, therefore, the promise, and we're talking about the promise that was given to Abraham, I will bless all people through you, but also the promise that comes directly to us through that promise, which is that we will be blessed. The promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and it may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. Check this out. That word nations in the Greek, which this was originally written in, the word that's translated Gentiles is actually the same word that's translated nations. And so when these guys are reading this the first time, there would have been much a distinction between nations and Gentiles. So I have, look, back this up. Uh, he is the father of us all, verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father to many Gentiles, or to all the Gentiles, to the nations. He says this is for everyone. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. We're gonna talk about what it means to be risen from death into life next week as we jump into chapter six. But I think it's really cool that Jesus here, uh, because of Jesus, and Paul points it out, we are made heirs to the same promise that was given to Abraham, the same promise that was for the nation of Israel. 
The promise that the whole world will be blessed and that we would know and be known by God. And I believe with all my heart that that's why Jesus' last instruction to his followers was go and tell the nations, tell them all, and lead them to me. Of all of the moving parts of the mechanism of the gospel, Christianity, Faith is the gear that gets, us, gets it going. Last week I called it like the, the crankshaft. And if you don't know engines, that's okay. But it's like, it's the main piece of the engine that's gonna just turn everything else and get it working. God just wants us to believe in him. And faith is not just believing. The book of James says that the demons believe. It's not just believing, but it's taking the steps to act like we believe and to follow. So we cross over into chapter five. We've done good. Got through two whole chapters of Romans. And we're in chapter five now, and he wraps up this, this idea about faith. He's gonna show us the benefits of faith in Jesus. Um, have you ever signed up for something, a membership, a club, or something, and like totally didn't reap all the benefits of the club? I can't help but mention, we're here at the YMCA. This is a health club, among many other things. Um, but right through those glass windows, there's, like, there's treadmills. I run up there all the time, looking down the gym. I think, hey, I preach right there sometimes. And like, keep on going. There's like weight benches, and there's machines. And so this is a gym. And I got to wondering, how many gym memberships do people buy and they never use? Um, I would call us out and be like, raise your hand if you have a gym. I'm not going to do that. Um, but I looked it up, and according to USA Today, listen to this, 67% of gym memberships, according to their survey, go unused. 67%. That's a lot of people who are paying. And the average gym membership, it said, was around 60 bucks. Just think of the huge economy. These gyms are staying open because of people who are like, one day I'm going to run on a treadmill. Take my money. Thank you. But we do it with other things. Maybe you have multiple streaming services. You got Hulu, you got Netflix, you got six other things. And like, you don't watch any of them. You don't watch any of them. We had cable TV and we were watching everything on Netflix and, uh, and, and Sling. And we were like, why are we paying for cable TV? I don't understand why. Like, so we just went, we, ch- we got rid of it. And there's so many things that we, we get ourselves into that and we don't reap the benefits of it fully. And we do it with other things. Have you ever had an impulse buy for a pair of shoes? And you never wore those things. Never wore those things. I'm going to wear those. I'm going to get an outfit. It's going to be great. And then you never wore them, and eventually they go to Goodwill looking brand new. I, I shop at Goodwill sometimes, and there's like tags on stuff. I'm like, man, perfect. Save me the trip to Target. Like, <laughs> skip the middleman. Go straight to it. We do it with milk. You buy a gallon of milk, you're pour half a gallon away because there's chunks in it. Why do I mention all that? <laughs> You'll remember that. So often... We buy into something and it doesn't pay off like we hoped it would. I tell you all of those examples to tell you this one thing. The gospel is not like that. When we buy into the gospel, when we come into contact with who Jesus is, it delivers 100% of the time. And it gives us everything we could ever hope for or imagine. Um, and instead of paying for a membership that we never use, God pays the cost, the fee for our membership and we can't live without it. In fact, without it, we're dead. We're spiritually disconnected from God. And if you remember in chapters one and two, Paul painted the picture of how severely sin has separated us from God. And in chapters three and four, we just looked at, he explains what it means to have faith in Christ, to be credited with righteousness. And here in Romans chapter five, starting at verse six, look at Romans five, verse six. Paul lays it out as clearly as possible, the benefits we receive from this membership in Christ. This is what he says. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. 
Time out, pause. If you were here uh, last week, or if, I hope you'll go through and read this on your own later. If you remember chapters one and two, that whole thing was talking about the ungodly. And Paul basically said, we're all in that boat. And while we were still powerless to do anything for ourselves, Christ died. He was that atoning sacrifice that we talked about. Verse seven. He says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. I mean, there's these moments. You've, you hear of, you know, grand heroic moments, a soldier jumping on a grenade or a parent pushing their kid out of the way of a car and, and giving their life. And, and those are noble and those are good. And it's because like, you know what, it's, it's worth it. But not for a scumbag, not for someone who has like betrayed you, not for someone that you know isn't worth the life, right? But God looks at us and says, while we were still sinners, while we were still separated from, I want to give my life. Verse eight, God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What a deal. What a bargain. And the only word for it is grace. Because we can never pay for it on our own. And we get to walk through the doorway into righteousness. And we get to enjoy the presence of God in our life, both now and for all eternity. And we get to take part in the kingdom of God as it lives in this world. Impacting and affecting the lives of millions who just seek him. Restoring brokenness, restoring wholeness to the broken. And, and, and restoring, uh, you know, hope to the hopeless and all those things. Verse 9. And since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemy, we were recon reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Guys, Jesus is not dead. And if you look around the world at all the other world religions and all of the other uh, sci psychological ways of thinking and all of the other worldviews, the founders of all of those schools of thought are dead and gone. And you can go to their grave and you can go to their tomb and you can go to their mausoleum and you can go to the plaques that say in memory of so-and-so, but our Lord and Savior, our King, is alive. And that's why when he promises us life, you can know you're gonna get it because he knows the secret. He knows how to restore life, and it's by giving access to his life. It is hard to imagine a world where we're not constantly working to climb out of whatever mess we have dived into. It is hard to imagine this world where the brokenness can actually be put back together, but Jesus created, created a way by giving us the opportunity to know him, that through Jesus, we can find righteousness. The most powerful thing I could say ever to you is to tell you that Jesus is offering you a fresh start. And he's inviting you to walk through the doorway of righteousness by believing in him. And maybe you've already made that decision for your life. And if that's so, keep taking one more step of faith every day. Because every step of faith is a step towards righteousness. And if that's not you today, like I said, you might, you might be here for the first time. You might have come with a friend. You might just be here on vacation and you decided to get up early and come to the gym and they were closed. So you get, came to church. I don't know. I don't know what might, might have drug you here this morning. But I want you to know this promise is for you too. And maybe you're not ready to jump in today. Um, that's fine. That's cool. Come back next week. We do this every week. You can keep learning. This is the gears of the gospel. So you can just keep listening for the rest of this book and see if it's something that, that you can believe. Or maybe you've been hearing this for a while and you're ready to dive in. 
I would love to invite you to have faith in Jesus today, to say, I want to believe that with my life. I'm going to live for him. We can offer you the thing that, that Jesus says we should do for every person who believes, which is to go to the waters of, of Christian baptism. We've got a pool that the YMCA lets us use right through that hallway, and we've already used it a couple times since we've moved in here. And I'd love to invite you to come and be baptized today. And it teaches in the book of Acts that through baptism, we receive the forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, this new promise, this fresh start. It's an amazing thing. Today could be your fresh start today. And the things that you thought would never change could start to change. That's faith. Let's walk through the doorway. Let's pray.